Hi everyone, this is Ishan Iqbal. This podcast is a collection of my experiences in filmmaking. This is My Shooting Diaries, sponsored by Island Yaka Roasters. My guest today is Douglas Coe, the cinematographer from Honey Boy. Hi Doug. Hi Ishan, how are you? <laughs> I'm good, how are you doing? Good, good, yeah, good. I would like to start how you got to this place as a cinematographer, like was it always something that you wanted to do or was it something that you decided later on in your life? So I got started, it's actually slightly unusual in that when I was in high school, we had uh, near the end of high school, there was an an elective uh, in in our English class, which was film and literature, because one of our English teachers was a real uh, cinema fan. So what you would do is you would read a book and then you would watch the movie that had been made from it. And then you had to write a little assignment about, uh, you know, the differences between a film and the book and all that kind of stuff. I really got into it. And one of the strange things you had to do, this is back in like the late 1970s, is you had to make these little Super 8 film exercises. So you couldn't really do sound. It was all silent. And so we would shoot these little exercises, and then glue them, you know, cut them together with literally with cement <laughs> and uh, you had to show them to the whole class and stuff like that. So then you could uh, take this course in the final year, where it was a full year long, just as one of our electives. And a friend and I made a crazy science fiction extravaganza. And we spent like literally six months making this uh, this little film. I, I just sort of noticed like, hmm, I can't believe how much effort I'm putting into this and how much I actually love doing this. Maybe this is a hint. So I guess I'm one of these lucky people that when they were very young, figured out what it was they wanted to do. And then from there, I went to film school. I grew up in Vancouver on the West Coast. And then the film schools at that time, the best ones in the country were in Toronto, which is where I ended up. And so I moved there when I guess I was about 18 and uh, went to film school. And then just things just took off from there. And it was uh, music videos were a very new thing at the time in the early 80s. So that was an excellent training ground because a lot of the time you had to, you know, do a lot with a little. Here's a smoke machine, a couple of lights, a few gels, go, you know, and there wasn't really much. A lot of the time there's no art direction or anything. So you had to create all these images and that and then into movies and things like that. Yeah. I mean, that's the very, that's, that's the very, very beginnings as it were. Yeah. So uh, the progression of, of, of my work sort of was like when I first started, I was doing a lot of documentary work, educational documentary films and uh, music videos, a new thing at the time, as I was saying, which was really interesting and allowed me to do all sorts of experimentation, short films. Then I ended up doing um, my first theatrical feature film, which I really lucked out. It was with a director named Patricia Rosema, and it was called I've Heard the Mermaids Singing, and the film did very well. It really went over big time. It was a big, uh, big career booster. and. Uh, yeah, so then I was, so uh, after that, that was around 1987, I guess. And then I got involved with, you know, like smaller feature films, independent Canadian feature films. Uh, then I started working in commercials. And I found that uh, I really like the commercials in the 90s were really fun. I, I call it the stylish 90s because they really were quite stylish. And we were shooting the black and white film and doing all sorts of really, you know, it was, it was really fun if you were, especially if you were a DP, it was really fun. And that literally ended around the year 2000, I think. And, it's, and it sort of became, the styles became different. And it was more of a, I used to, they used to call it a sort of the no-look look. So it was a lot of, you know, 
a single Kino flow over the camera, locked off, very, you know, so I found a lot of that for me was sort of kind of boring. But, uh, and then I got more back into movies again, did that. And, uh, and then lately, I guess for me, it's, it's always been a sort of a funny balancing game is I still like working in commercials. I have lots of friends who do that. And, uh, and then I love working in long form stuff in drama. So I try to bounce back and forth, which is sometimes quite difficult to, to do, but uh, I still try to do it. Working with Deepa Mehta for the first time, 2002, was it? 2001? 2000, actually, yeah. No, wait, no, it was, two th it was 2001. You're right, it was 2001. The reason I remember was because we were in prep, I remember, when 9-11 happened. And so I remember the bunch of us like driving around in a minivan and, you know, and we're supposed to be like furiously planning this movie and everybody's just going like, oh my God, what's going on? Like, it was so strange. So that's how I remember it. But then, so we, um, so working with Deepa for the first time, um, uh, I, actually, it's not true. The very first time I worked with her was back in 1987 and she was producing a film that was a trilogy of three stories. And the idea was it was three women's stories, three women directors, storytellers. And I lucked out and got the job of shooting this film. And so Deepa actually became one of the directors, one of the three directors. There was, I'm not sure why she left the project, but Deepa ended up stepping in. And then, and then I don't know if that was her first dramatic directing job or not. I'm not sure, but we got on great. Uh, we enjoyed the whole film thing went really well and everything. And then, yeah, I didn't hear for, for, uh, from her for a few years. And then, then that's when I got the call to do, uh, uh, Bollywood Hollywood, which was a really fun movie and, uh, you know, super colorful, big dance numbers, uh, song and dance numbers. It was really, it was really great fun. I really, really enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, long time ago now, but, uh, I have, I have quite good memories of most of it. It was like really, uh, quite a blast and everything, but, uh, but my dream was always to do something in India, you know, uh, or Sri Lanka now, of course, but, uh, and just being that, um, you know, it's always really interesting to be doing something in a place that's new to you. You know, you think of, imagine how, you know, familiar we are shooting here as you must be shooting in Sri Lanka, right? Here's, you know, you know, you know, all the kinds of locations and what they look like and the, the whole look. And so to suddenly find yourself in a different environment is really amazing. And I'd love Deepa's films, her trilogy. I guess she, she'd done uh, Fire and Earth, I think, by that time, maybe. Yeah. And hadn't done Water. And um, uh, yeah. And then we uh, soon after that did a second film together called The Republic of Love. She didn't write it, I believe. I think, no, she was just, you know, like a director brought into that project. We did that film together. And then, yeah, more time went by, more time went by. And then we collided again on Funny Boy. <laughs> so I feel like I've known her for a very long time. The time you have gone above and beyond on projects, like, for example, like any project is quite tough and very complicated. Like, mm -hmm. Do you have any, for instance, with film or any set of films that uh, you have had to do that? Back in around 1998, I was doing a commercial in Caracas, Venezuela, if you can believe it. And it was everybody's first time going there. All the other people were all like Cuban or Colombian Americans from Miami. And I'd worked with a few of them before, but uh, I was the only gringo, you know. And uh, we flew, I flew down there 
And the whole thing was very funny. It's the only time I ever kept a diary, like all the weird things that happened. It was so funny. And, but the strangest thing that happened was, and this is the beyond the call of duty thing I would say was we were part of what we were filming was part of the story was a businesswoman who's like, it's her day. And so it's, this is her going to work. So we're going to film her arriving on the subway on the Metro line. And so we were shooting at this, we were allowed to shoot at this uh, Metro station. that was like at the end of a line in Krakus, way out in the middle of nowhere. And um, it was very strange, the surroundings. It felt like you were in the movie city of God, you know, that movie from Brazil. It was just like that. If you can picture that, it was a really interesting place. And so there we were in the station. We're all set up to go. We put our actors on the train. The train pulls back and then it's going to come into the station. Only it just keeps going and going and going and going and disappears into the horizon. We're like, what's going on? And so finally we find out there's been flooding in the tunnels in central Caracas. And so the system, they've, they've taken their, their car. They want it because it's a nice new modern one. And and it has our actors on board. And so we're like, whoa. And so it took about an hour before the actors were able to wind their way back through and get to us. And then, so now we're standing with the actors. Now we don't have a, a okay. subway car. Yes. So then they bring us in a subway car. They say, here, you can have this one. And this thing literally goes <laughs> into this thing. And it's like, it's completely like, filthy and garbage in it and it, and like literally like quick everybody gonna board and like literally myself the director everyone we had squeegee bottles we had to everybody had to chip in the advertising okay. agency the producer everybody's cleaning windows cleaning the seats and everything and then the thing wouldn't even move it just get, and we so what could happen next and then the power went out and it was like oh my god and the train won't move so then they had me can you can you move lights to make it seem as if the train it was very funny but I thought that was a very uh, entertaining thing where it was literally like, quick, grab a rag and some cleaner and you're cleaning graffiti off things and stuff like that. Well, and I would say like, and in, and in movies, I know that, uh, I mean, I just think that like I did a movie uh, uh, called The Grand Seduction, which was shot in Newfoundland, which is a, our sort of easternmost province in Canada, in the Atlantic there, a giant, it's like a giant island. It's a really amazing place. The people are fantastic there. And we were shooting this, this comedy film. It was really, it was really neat, uh, really neat, great actors. It was set in ver- a very small sort of coastal village. And, but it was actually composed of, we sort of made it by combining locations in two little small villages that were quite a ways apart. But what I would do is in my prep is I would just, I just ask them if I could have like a, just a local person with me or PA or somebody locations PA or something. And I would get them to just drive me and I would go out and just spend like the day, like an entire day in prep by myself, just studying these funny little towns. I mean, when I say towns, they're very, very small. There's not much to them at all, but I just found it was, um, what I like to do was to really sort of almost become like an expert on the place so that I really knew like every little thing and, beautiful rock formation by the shore and really interesting. They have really neat looking old buildings and stuff. And then just also studying the light and you spend the whole day there. And then you could say at any time, say here, you know, and I would take lots of pictures and then I could go to the director and say, check this out, check that out. And and it, it was just, it really took so much guesswork out of a lot of stuff. And so I think that that was a time really well spent because you could have, you could have spent it sort of in a lot of ways, but to me, that was the absolute best way was going there and just 
um, really being able to present, because the director had so much they had to do, that being able to present the director with so many different uh, options and things that they could pick from, you know, and, and get a sense. And then it made it very easy for us to, because, you know, if you merge two, say, two places, two locations together, and you're trying to make them look like it's all one place, you have to be careful sometimes, you know, that it doesn't get really confusing. Like, wait a second, I thought they were walking away from the ocean. Now they're, you know, I mean, it's not as important a lot of the time if the story's good. Like, it's not as important as you might think, I find. But um, it does help to have your story straight. Yeah, for example, yeah. we look at, like, issues with continuity. Some big Hollywood films have massive yeah. jumps, and it annoys me a lot. Yeah. Friends and I, when we go to a movie... They, they're annoyed with me because I just pointed out. <laughs> so like, what kind of continuity issues do you mean? Of what style of continuity? Like background, you know, like they, they shoot a wide. One guy, yeah. they go to the close-up, the guy's like really close-up. I'm like, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. So, some, they just don't even think of it. Like, uh, yes, yes. Well, it's true. You know, the whole, the whole exercise really, when you think of it a lot of the time is is knowing what you can get away with, whether you're a director, script supervisor, DP. A lot of time, it's sort of like, yeah, what, what will people notice? What will knock us out of the story? Because you can't, it can't be perfect, right? It's like it's almost, you have too many things working against you to make it absolutely perfect. But I guess you're like one of these people, Ishan, you're like one of these people who has perfect pitch. And so that if they listen to music, they drive everyone crazy because they always complain. That note is off by the slightest... They hear everything. What are your toughest aspects of your job like, as a DP? Oh, the toughest aspects of the job. I, I would think that all DPs would probably say the same thing, which is time, right? Which is you probably almost never have enough time to do what you need. Like, I read this thing somewhere recently. I think it's Leonard Bernstein said it or something. He goes, what's essential for like a for something great to happen. And it was, it's something like a great idea and just not quite enough time, you know, that's what's it's essential. Right. And I think that's the single biggest one is that, and it's, I think it's, and it's, it's much tougher now. I think it's even more hurry, 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 hurry. And, um, and I think that that's, I think that's the toughest aspect of it because sometimes things will play right into that where you go, yes, it's in everybody's best interest. It'll be great. It's going to look good. Like working here. Like what I like, for instance, is when you're shooting in magic hour in twilight, dawn and dusk, because it's like theater. You have to do it. Everybody has to be ready. And when people see it's getting dark, they right away understand yeah. we have to film right now. Like when they say we have to roll right now, they're, they're not they're not joking or not just saying it it's obvious whereas at other times things can stretch out and be sort of very painful so something about that it forces everybody to be sort of uh, at their best and and sharp and everything like that so i think that's that's really what the biggest uh, the biggest thing is yeah i mean it's certainly more competitive than it's ever been the you know the fact that you can shoot a feature film now if you want with a camera that costs nothing it's like you know probably with your phone it's sort of so it just means like everybody is a, you know, can be a DP now kind of thing like that. And that's definitely makes it a bit more difficult, too. So I was talking to my first episode, the director from uh, England that I worked with. Yeah. Last summer, he shot a, a feature film with an iPhone with anamorphic lenses. It costed him thousand five hundred pounds. Yeah. 
does this mean that we are going to lose our jobs also? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it is funny. I mean, like, the, I, I think there is a funny thing going on where, you know, like you could always say in the past, and you can sort of say it now, that, you know, you sort of get what you pay for, you know. So if you're using like, uh, you know, like an Aerial Alexa, then it's like, oh, there's a reason that camera costs as much money as it does, you know, that the image quality is really high has a huge capture range, like dynamic range. So if you suddenly say, oh my goodness, is it possible we can see out that bright window over there? And sure enough, you're going, yes, you can. There's lots of detail. Whereas if it's an iPhone or a DLSLR or something, you might look at it and sort of go, mm, sorry, that's all clipped and gone. You'll never get, you, you sort of have to like what you see when you shoot it. But what's getting funny now is these two things are, are actually, I think, starting to really sort of meet where you start going, what is the the actual advantage of the really expensive camera? You know, and it, I guess it depends what you're doing, but in many ways, it 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 uh, it certainly liberates people when your camera is so small. It makes a huge difference, right? It's uh, you know, you can get a lot more stuff done, and it's if you got a good idea. But again, it always boils down to you have to have great ideas. You know, good cast, good story, all that kind of stuff, or you're wasting your time, I think. Good director. Good director, that helps. That doesn't hurt, yes. But even a good director, if they're caught with a bad script, is bad, too, or if the actors are not well cast. I mean, that's a huge, I'm sure, if you're talking directors, they would say the casting is such a huge part of it. Like, if you've done that right, then you're, you're really laughing, you know? I mean, when I look at Funny Boy, I look at that and I sort of go... Now that it's done, I can't imagine anyone else playing those parts. You know what I mean? Like when you look at it, you sort of go, oh, yeah, no, these people are really well cast in this movie. Like you sort of go, they really have become these people, I find. And so it's like, oh, yeah, it's really hard to picture anyone else doing it. How much prep time do you usually get uh, before a shoot, like a film shoot? Uh, In terms of prep time... Uh, it seems to vary. Uh, it seems to vary a lot that um, certain projects they they have sort of planned for a lot. And I guess the big biggest difference people would say is they will budget for actually paying you, you know, for your time, say to do prep, and that might be oh, it's like a month or something like that, like four weeks or three weeks of paid prep or whatever. I certainly always put in much more than that. And in fact, for me, it's like as soon as to me, it's almost impossible to have too much, uh, you know, in the sense of I find the most critical thing a lot of the time is, uh, I think for everybody is the locations. And because when you don't have locations, you don't have a home and being homeless is really terrible. And, and, and like, once you know where you're doing something, then every single department knows what they can do and they can start thinking about it. And so I find that's the difficult, one of the biggest difficult things in prep and uh, also, I like to generally be quite organized, if possible, like to with the director visually. And um, and I think most directors really want to do this because they want to spend their time like directing and shooting, not not blocking and figuring everything out. So as much as we can go into this, these spaces ahead of time and have the time to plan it, on most projects, you might only have the time and prep and and, and, and the ability to maybe prep the first week or two or something like that. And then we'll frequently go in on you know, on a, on a, our Saturday or whatever other day off, we'll go in for half a day with the actors maybe and play around and stuff like that. But, but that way it can be organized. But uh, yeah, I would say that the, uh, the average prep is probably about that, like three weeks to, 
to a month, but but you probably want twice that. So I've uh, read somewhere where Roger Deacon says he asks for eight weeks of prep for a film. Yeah. Well, it's like, I mean, you know, the thing is, it's, you know, that that's the whole thing is that it means that when you're able to do that, it just simply means that like, it, it, they're really well prepared when they come to do these things. And I mean, you know, I know that when that guy's shooting stuff that it's, you know, that it, it comes off very smoothly, I think, and it's due to his talent and experience. But it's also due to the fact that he's they figured out a lot of this stuff ahead of time. You know, they've really, they've kind of thought this out, I'm sure. And I know it's different when he's working with different directors and stuff, but you know, they got to figure stuff out. And I mean, and, and something certainly like 1917, it's, that's impossible to do something like that. If you don't plan it properly, there's just no way you can put something like that together. If you, you know, like I think, and so many people I think are unaware of that, that they would do things like they would go out to a field and they would take the real actors and rehearse them and time a move. And then they would mark it and they would say, this is how long this trench is that the guys are going to walk through. Like, this is how you do it. Because if they guess, because normally they, they would just come to you and say, how long should this trench be? And you go, I don't know, uh, 30 meters, 100 feet, 110 feet. I don't know. You know, you make something up, right? But there is like very accurate. You know, they have a very good sense and they, and they give themselves you know, they really have thought it out and stuff like that. So I think that's very smart. Yeah. Well, Roger Deakins, he does, he does a lot of smart things like that. And, and, and I, I, I certainly admire a lot of the, uh, uh, his approach to a lot of things, like even equipment, he's very, he's uh, really interesting. He doesn't sort of fetishize different lenses and anamorphics and flares. And like, he's very, he's got a very methodical approach about it, I think. And uh, I, I really like his approach to things. If you ever had the chance to choose between a digital format or an, a film format, what would you like to shoot with? Digital or film? Well, interesting you to ask. Um, I really love shooting digitally. I was spent most of my career obviously shooting on film, but I really love shooting with digital cameras. And I find... Um, that there are still a few things that are really cool about film where that would be, if that was the, what you were doing, that would be the right approach. And I would be very excited to do that. And I, I do worry when people sometimes say, well, we'll just shoot it digitally. Then we'll, we'll, we'll make it look like that. Or we'll make it look like super eight or whatever. It's like, well, why don't we just like shoot it on super eight? And, you know, like, and then it is exactly what it is, you know? So, and there's certain circumstances, like, I mean, particularly like on films is one thing on, on, on something like a commercial, or if it was a, a TV series that was a really, with a really tight schedule and budget, you also run into the problem of the more stuff that you put off into post, there's also the danger that they might forget to do it and you're not around or they run out of money or they just don't care or whatever. So a lot of the time, if you, you know, if you want something to look a certain way, the more that you can actually burn that in as it is and get it done at the time, you know, sort of the better. But I have no, I, I'm definitely not somebody that has a, uh, I have no sort of religiosity uh, surrounding film. Like I, there's things about it that I like, but there's a lot of things about that, that bug me even still. And sometimes when I see something shot on film, I go, yeah, that's something I don't miss from film. Like there's certain looks they get, you get from it sometimes. And with questionable lenses and stuff and 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 you sort of go yeah i don't like that look it used to drive me crazy when my stuff i got stuck well, with for me like for me the one thing that uh like i like about the film is the graining yeah sure so yeah, that's absolutely. one thing like if i ever get to do a film 
I will want to shoot it in film. Like if if it's the right project, like it's not random, yeah. but yeah. Uh, like if if I find something worthy of shooting in film, right? Would you have chosen the Ari Alexa Mini LF to shoot Funny Boy, or would you? You know what's funny? I probably would have just gone with an Alexa, and the reason being that I would have been uh, thinking that I needed the like the fastest lenses possible. Like I would have thought, like I would have done. I, my first guess is I would have said, we'll go Alexa Mini, maybe we'll shoot like Open Gate, Airy Raw, because it's a feature, and we'll use like the Zeiss Master Primes. And my reasoning behind that would be that before I even went there, I knew it will be very dark. Like I know that a lot of these places, it's not like Toronto where I live, where it's like big, like light pollution, like, you know, like light everywhere. It's too much light at night here almost to film when you film. And I just thought it's going to be dark and the train station and on the train, I thought, uh, it's like, I, I need like all the light gathering power I can get. So I probably, that probably would have been my, um, my initial take on it. And the Alexa is the, the camera that I've used the most and, and on features and series and such like that. So that's what I would have picked. And I would have been, but, uh, but just from that simple practical point of view, I really love those lenses because to me, what's really great about them is they're, they perform so well, even wide open that it's like anything you sort of do with them is you, you're going to get great performance out of them. So if you turn, turn around and say, Oh, I have to actually shoot this at T16, this crazy close-up shot or something to get to hold what we need to hold, it's going to work. And if I'm at night and have to shoot a big wide shot, it's not going to be all kind of buzzy. I know it, it will actually work. And on funny boy, uh, when I found out that they already had this camera booked and it's like, yeah, this is a great camera. This is really great. But I was concerned about the night stuff. What I did is I got my hands on, I said, okay, well just get me three master primes, even though they don't theoretically cover. True. I mean, that was the thing. I mean, you know, like that's the other thing that's nice too, is these, you know, these cameras are very tough, you know, and they, and the, the heat and humidity in Sri Lanka is like, you know, it's like there's times where it's going to, you know, it's going to test it. I'm sure that's what it was. Because, you know, you see these things and it's a little black box sealed. Basically, it looks like it's airtight and it's in this really hot environment. You, you know, I, I almost like it, I'm operating almost like burn my hand on it a few times. You know, it's like gets so hot and you go. The, the thing with the lenses on Funny Boy was I found that the 50 and the 85 Master Prime covered the, the large format, the Alexa LF. And it looked great. And the difference, the signature primes were the main things. And the Master Primes are sort of, exactly one stop faster but i found it was like wow like what a difference it made it really it almost seemed like more than that to me but i just found like what a difference and then the 29 we had wouldn't cover so you'd see a funny portholing effect like this right it would be darkened at the edges but all you do is blow it up and then when you blow it up it's just back to being basically a regular alexa so it doesn't really you know it's not like you're you're going to suffer any image quality loss or anything like that. But uh, so it was, yeah, it was a, yeah, it's it sort of, you know, basically worked out. What's the best advice you could give someone who is interested in cinematography? I think my, one of my guesses would be to say, would be to, the biggest single one is you really want to know directors and producers, but uh, that's a big thing. When I came up, I did it 
with, you know, I came up with certain up and coming directors too, and producers. So that's a critical thing is you, you really want to sort of meet uh, similar minded people to yourself and get connected to them and shoot their projects for them. I think that's the single biggest thing because that's how you'll sort of hopefully get pulled along with them. And, you know, you do great work together. They'll probably continue to work with you and one thing will lead to another and you'll meet other people. So I think that's the single most important thing is, is, uh, you, you know, there's, there's probably lots of people out there that, that, uh, you know, know a lot of the theoretical end of things and play with cameras and stuff, but they might be frustrated because they don't have any projects to shoot because nobody knows them. And, and then, and then of course, if you haven't shot stuff, you don't have stuff to show, which means that you don't can't get people won't hire you because you don't have anything to show. So I think you have to basically like take everything you can get when you're starting and uh, really sort of get that kind of thing going. Um, I would still say probably that, and, and I would say that music videos are probably still an excellent thing to make sure you get your hands into. And again, for this reason of you're called upon more so than, usually much more so than, say, in dramatic work, you're called upon to do so, so much more than simply, you know, sort of photograph something, that a lot of the time the whole sort of atmosphere of the thing or whatever may be created by like your cinematography it probably plays like a huge role in what you're doing somehow and also just the free form you know the experimentation is really good i think that's a really good practice is to be able to and to be doing things that are much different so that you you try things that uh are outside of what you would normally do that's a big one what was your inspiration? Like you shot the entire film handheld. I've seen the easy rig every single time on you. Like yes. I'm on set. Well, Deepa sort of in terms of the, the, the whole, the camera style and, you know, and the lighting as well too, the look of it was uh, Deepa said right away, this is, this is how I'd like to do it. I'd like to sort of do it all handheld. I don't want to be laying track, waiting for dolly track to be moved, cranes, all this kind of stuff. She goes, I really want to play with a sort of free form, you know, and, and flexible type of thing like that. And personally, I, I'd actually been dying to do something like that quite a bit. There was a film I did a little while ago where we almost did that in a film. It was a, in a film where the idea was going to be we're going to shoot the whole thing handheld except for one sequence where this one character is in a very different place and a different uh, mind space too. And then that would have become completely locked off, no camera movement whatsoever and no music or anything like that in that section. That, that, and I think it would have been, I think it would have been a neat thing to do, but we didn't end up doing that. We took a sort of a, a different, different approach to that film. It was a more suspenseful kind of thing and it ended up being more dollies and, you know, dollies and, uh, and stable shooting and more conventional kind of shooting. So when this came up, I thought, Oh, well, that's a neat idea. I've kind of wanted to do something like that. Um, I was nervous initially about how short the prep time was on funny boy, but because Deepa was so sort of uh, encouraging and enthusiastic about, you know, essentially almost like near available light or just, you know, keeping it really to a minimum, which is as much as minimal as necessary and the idea of basically doing it all handheld, uh, that really sort of relaxed me in a sense because I thought, oh, yeah, okay, well, that's the way in which, you know, this kind of thing becomes like super possible. And what I really, what I really enjoyed about the idea of it too, which turned me on about doing this, was the fact that you could change your mind so quickly about things and decide, ah, 
you know, I'm not going to go down the, I'm going to just suddenly go down this hallway with this character or something like you could do things like that. And you didn't have to go, okay, what are we going to do? Or, you know, like, okay, now we got to extend the dolly track or can we go on this floor? All that kind of stuff. So I think the flexibility of it for me was really liberating. And then even the types of shots, she would sometimes suggest a shot. Like she said, well, what if we're here? And then we go and we look inside here at them all in one. And I would think, oh, that's really cool. I wouldn't normally think to do that. Um, because, you know, there would just be all these things that would make that sort of tricky to deal with as a cinematographer in a conventional way. But just doing it, knowing I'd see it, I could just do it. I, I don't know. It just, it was very sort of inspiring to do that. So I found it became very liberating and very freeform in that way. And um, the flexibility of it, I think, was was just really fun. You know, there were other funny things like actors bumping into you sometimes or you bump into them. And, you know, because a lot of it was sort of, that was the other thing that was different too. It was a little bit more wider lenses in closer, I think, than I would norm than I've normally done a lot of the time too, which was neat because you were in the story more with the characters. But sometimes it was tricky like that, where there was a couple of times where when the action started, you're going to get bumped and it's going to go. Well, crazy. I remember the riot scene, and uh, I I tried to push some people just to give some. Yeah, 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 yeah. I started I started pushing people away, and I'm like, "What are we doing now?" Well, at the at the at the bus station when 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 we were filming at the bus station and it's all those people packing towards the bus. I think every single take, I sort of apologized. Yeah, I remember. I was right behind you. Yes. Yeah, because I would just go like, "Oh my god, I'm literally just going to get in there and start pushing people out of my way. Like I'm going to just become part of this mob." And I felt I felt terrible, but like it looked really good. <laughs> my best one was uh, the church when everyone was stranded. Oh yeah. You walking through, and people were like writing for the water. I'm like, yeah. this is going to be the end of it. I'm like pushing. People. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, I know that was that was really crazy. I know that's funny, but it you know it it, it adds a real crazy energy to it. Everything you know that whole thing, and uh, but yeah, I don't know. I I, I thought and um, the again sort of with the uh, you know the sort of the visual design of the film, it was like. It just really lent itself well, I thought, to the subject matter and also to the circumstance, you know, and that, and what was really nice is, you know, like we, we did short days and it was like, it wasn't a, I never felt like we were like, oh my God, in the middle of some crazy thing. It was actually really like, it was like really fun. You know, I actually, I, I really don't think I've had as much fun probably on a, on a movie before as this one, really. And, uh. Finishing early also helps every single time. Yeah, that didn't hurt. I know. I know. I, I I have laughed with a few friends and told them, I said, I remember our longest day. It was 11 hours and uh, people <laughs> were really freaked out. And I said, well, we, and we actually finished it like one or two in the morning. It was like the night by the church. It's very rejuvenating to, to not work such crushing long hours. I mean, the sad thing I think in film, as in many things, is that there's, unfortunately, there is a little bit of a no pain, no gain thing sometimes, oh. you know, where it's like, it's like if everybody works really hard and it's really difficult and everything, a lot of the time it actually means that the end result may in fact actually turn out quite well. Whereas if things sometimes are really simple and easy and fun, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that the end result will be so great, right? It's like Deepa has that great quote she, she had that I think she says she got from her father. And he said, there's two things in life you don't know. One, the time that you will die. And second, how a film will be received. <laughs> you know, and, and they go, yeah, it's a good one, right? It's true. You have no idea when you work on something. Like, you can have a feeling. But, I mean, I've definitely worked on things before that I thought 
I think people will really like this. I think people will be really into this. And like, nah, you know, it didn't necessarily do so well, you know? Like, so you can't, you know, the, the impression that you get or things that are a nightmare went to be a crew member on. And there's plenty of them. Things like, you know, like, like the movie Chinatown and uh, Blade Runner. And there's, you know, film is, uh, you know, apocalypse now. Like, uh, I think like, like, the, like film history is full of these film shoots where it's like those, the, the actual shoots themselves would have been like the last thing in the world you would have been wanting to be involved with because it was like misery. Uh, but yet, you know, in the end, who wouldn't want these films on their resume? You know, who wouldn't want to say that they, oh, I was like shot Blade Runner. I worked on Apocalypse. Like, who wouldn't want that? But if you talk to the people that worked on it, they sure weren't oh, yeah. saying that when they were doing it. <laughs> if there's one film that I would have had the opportunity to work, that would be to work with Coppola on either either Godfather or Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse yeah. Now was like one of those crazy adventure stories that ended up in a different, I've, I've read so many things about how many things that went wrong in that film. Martin Sheen having a heart attack. No, yeah. I don't think there'll be a, there will be a film that will be made in such a way soon. I, I don't think I'll be able to work in such film. Like yes. those one-offs. Right. Oh yeah. No, I mean, it was epic. I mean, I re I remember when that film was being made and I remember that you would, you would hear stories in the news. It was, you know, apocalypse when, you know, question mark, you know, and stuff. And, and it's true, you know, it's true. I mean, like, you know, it went on and on and on and on, but to me, the end result, I, I always thought it was really amazing film. And so, you know, in the end it's, it's sort of vindicating, but, you know, or, but at the other time, you know, you mentioned the Godfather, that was a difficult film too. Francis Ford Coppola was tearing his hair out in that. And as I understand it too, like he and Gordon Willis, the cinematographer, the DP on that, they didn't necessarily get on so great, you know, like, the, you know, there was, it's, it's interesting because you, you can't imagine that when you see the end result, you think, oh, this is like amazing. This is like, this is such an amazing film. And, and yet you go, yeah, but it was like, you know, it was a struggle. These things were a struggle. And for him in the, it sounds like in the casting of it, it was, you know, I mean, they were suggesting apparently, you know, people like Robert Redford and stuff, the studio mm. for, you know, for Michael Corleone. And he's going, no, 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 what? <laughs> it's like, what? And, you know, he, Al Pacino, like he, you know, he, he just insisted like, this is the guy, this guy will be like amazing. And I think Al Pacino, like you, have you ever seen, there's a really neat thing you can see where it's, they made him do screen tests and he does them with Diane Keaton and they do the scene from the wedding, the whole sort of, well, my father put a gun to his head and, you know, said I'll either, or Luca Brazzi put a gun to his head and said, I'll either have your signature or your brains on this piece of paper. And then you can even see where Robert De Niro, there's a, there's where Robert De Niro plays, does a screen test as Michael Corleone. And he see him in there and it's like wild, but I think he had to do, I think Pacino had to do two or three screen tests even to get that part. No, it was not now, two. It was, it was more than that. On the 45th anniversary, Coppola tells he had to do approximately more than 10, 10. Really? Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, and it's really unbelievable when you look back now and you go like, how could that, how could that possibly be? But if you think about it, you go, 
if Coppola hadn't fought really hard, you know, The Godfather, instead of being as, you know, there would, you could find a lot of people would say that's probably the best like American film that's ever been made. Like there's many people would say that if, if he hadn't fought tooth and nail, I mean, it would, it could easily just have been some long forgotten bad movie, you know, yeah, like exactly. that nobody ever watches or laughs about. Anyway, thank you for doing this. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you everyone for listening into The Shooting Diaries, sponsored by Island Yaka Roasters. Next episode features Amanda Redmond.